Hello and welcome to the Hall of Fame Movie Podcast. Listen to Matt Levy and Mark Rossi as they put their cinema studies degrees to good use and induct the best movies of all time into their own Hall of Fame. With no further ado, roll the camera. Hey guys, welcome back to the Hall of Fame Movie Podcast. You're here and we are back to... Yes, talking about movies after our two-episode uh, spinoff. But as always, I'm your host, Matt Levy, and I am joined by my co-host, the man talking about Jedis with me today. I couldn't do without you any of these episodes. Mark oh, Rossi. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad we're back into movies. I guess this is like our the pocket that we people may argue that we should stay in, but we're, we're back to doing what we arguably do best. You know, Mark, I feel like the last two weeks, we were that giant tractor trailer on the left lane of the parkway that has no business being there. And everyone's like, get over, move, go back into your lane. Well, Mark, we are back in our lane. We're back in our comfort zone. We're talking about movies and we're even more in our comfort zone. Because we're talking about the force, lightsabers and Star Wars. Yeah, it does feel like a, like a, a, a comfort food for me whenever uh like actually it's it's funny I, I i led into it that way like if i'm sick i'll usually lean into one of like two trilogies like i'll lean into this or lord of the rings and pretty consistently if i feel really bad and i have like a blanket over my shoulders and soup on my table i'll put on like a star wars movie or i'll put on lord of the rings so this does feel very much like a comfort zone for me. And as much as we've talked about Lord of the Rings, and I do have an affinity and love for it, it's a little longer, deeper. It's a little slower pace because of its its length of time. Star Wars is something you can feel like you can always be in the mood for. There's You don't have to be in the mood for it. It's just something that's always classic, timeless, and you can find it usually now with Disney Plus all the time, but Growing up, you and me could probably find this always on TBS most days. Yeah, it was always available. It was everywhere on all the cable networks. I think it even bled into like UPN and like some of the just regular broadcast stations on like their Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon movie that they would do. But there's something simpler about the original trilogy without like all of the, the lore that's been kind of conjured up in the decades since about oh, being Force-sensitive and the Force and all the different abilities you have to have with the Force and all the show, like the showy things you have to do with the Force to prove that you're Force-sensitive. There's something that's a lot simpler and just straight line, like kind of eye on the ball with, with these movies that I think is missing in the prequels and sequels. Yeah, Mark, before midi-chlorians and before all the other stuff that you just mentioned, let's let's go back. Even before Disney had its grubby paws all over Star Wars. And, <laughs> and listen, Disney's done some good things with it. I'm not going to poo-poo on, on Disney, obviously. They, they, they do plenty good. But let's go back to simpler times. Let's go back to 1980 because you and me have previously on this podcast talked about the original, the OG, A New Hope, which was... At one point, just called Star Wars A New Hope, right. but then it became Episode 4 because there was an Episode 5, and that changed everything. So let's talk about Episode 5 today. Let's talk about Empire Strikes Back. Well, first, the thing that you want to talk about, right, is just the title, right? You had a highly successful movie three years prior, and for the sequel, instead of going with Star Wars 2, you go with The Empire Strikes Back, or... Now, I think officially would be Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. But to not include the title of the previous successful film is something that was not commonplace at the time. Like, you had Superman, you had Superman 2. I think that it was a smart decision to not necessarily go in that direction, to say this is going to be... Uh, a different adventure of its own right and even though it's, it's connected it's not supposed to just be a sequel it's a different story in the same universe so that in and of itself is important but most of, most of the criticism that I've had with the prequel trilogy and well specifically the, the prequel trilogy is that George Lucas didn't have anyone that would say no to him the entire time and this film as it's become kind of the gold standard for the Star Wars series, is kind of just 
you know, a lesson in collaboration and delegation, right? After doing Star Wars and, and kind of being overwhelmed by the amount of things and amount of hats he had to wear, George Lucas, for this movie, to his credit, decided, okay, I'm going to kind of just delegate this out and I'm going to just focus on what I can do. Like, I can make the effects better. I can work on building that out and making that portion of the film as good as possible. But I'm going to delegate the screenplay out to people that I trust, and I'm going to delegate the directing out to someone that I trust. Yeah, And I, I think, think that really paid off here. Well, like you said, to his credit, knowing when to step back, but I think part of it, they said, was his health. I think they said yeah. that the stress and the burden of being the all-knowledgeable of the Star Wars universe was a lot for him. So, yeah, having bringing on producers and writers and, like you said, directors, what this did, like you said, as a collaboration is when anytime they had a question about Star Wars universe or he had an idea, they would sit in a room and bounce these ideas and say, does this make sense? Explain how this makes sense. And it, it makes some of these themes and tones and and scenes work better than, like you said, some of the prequels where it's sort of like a dictator or some of the sequels that I think paid too much to fan service. This was not fan service. This is probably the opposite. Star Wars A New Hope and Return of the Jedi yeah. were more fan service than Empire. Empire... When it first came out, this movie actually tore critics and tore fans because they didn't have a Return of the Jedi. They didn't know there was a happy ending coming. This was a darker, more mature tone, and it was a cliffhanger ending. So you're right. This was a bold sequel, and not only the bold the title, like you said before, which I'm so glad you brought that up. This is not Star Wars Episode 2 or Star Wars 2, like Terminator 2, Back to the Future 2. You can name dozens and dozens and dozens of sequels, and they usually they want to profit off of just being number two and just kind of jump off of that landing point but here they said no empire strikes back and people were probably were confused at the time i would think but there's so much bold like you said there and in, in george lucas saying i'm not directing this yeah I, and i think it's something that that the elder George Lucas could have really taken a lesson from his younger self in in kind of a flip on how how he usually imagined things that we get older and wiser but i think having the i wouldn't say foresight necessarily but having the self-awareness that okay i was overwhelmed with the amount of things that i had to do and sometimes there's going to be questions that that come up that, uh, that every idea that i have isn't, isn't going to be great and having people that he trusted too obviously was important right he picked a, he picked Lawrence Kasdan, he picked Irvin Kirshner, and they would collaborate together on different ideas and, and kind of hash it out. I think that's such an important process. Like, if we talk about, I'm going to just like swing to a completely different subject briefly. If we talk about like musicals like Hamilton, people talk about Lin-Manuel Miranda because he, he wrote the score and he, and he wrote and he starred in it. But part of that also was a, a collaborative process with his director, Tommy Kill, and also with his like choreographer and with his orchestrator so having that collaborative process even if you're the central creative mind behind it is really important because you need to have people that are, are that can say no but also that you'll listen to the no on so i think that's what really makes this movie work is that there are things that worked really well in star wars that they deviated from to create something new like it's very easy to follow that same type of formula i mean if we're being fair about it and i like the movie the force awakens is essentially the same exact plot and formula as a new hope but to go on a completely different formula and make decisions that people are not going to be happy with like people wanted luke and leia to end up together and the romance is centered around you know leia and han so that decision is is kind of bold there and then to go with the darker tone and end on a cliffhanger and from a narrative standpoint without necessarily knowing that you're going to have a third movie to have your hero lose and that be the end of the movie essentially is him licking his wounds having a robotic hand put on so that he has a hand again it's very different from how you felt at the end of Star Wars. So a lot of credit to him for going in a different direction and finding people that you trust so that you can be like, okay, what, my idea maybe isn't the greatest. Let's hash this out. Yeah, I agree with all what you said there, Mark. And one thing I would add to that, I would say he was scared. 
because he had such success with the first Star Wars that, listen, he made a lot of money on the first Star Wars movie, but right. he but he was not nearly as rich as he'd become later on. So I think at this point, if he failed with Empire Strikes Back, putting he put a lot of money into it as well, he might not be as rich as he is today if this movie stunk. So yeah. I think by putting all these different people in place and hiring different people, it it didn't put all of his eggs in one basket and he was able to divide and conquer and like you said do special effects and other things but i think by the prequels like you said he has more money than god after this yeah. trilogy is done after empire strikes back return of the jedi the sex success of these movies the merchandising and everything else that came with the the mega hit that is star wars he had more money than he would need for for 20 lifetimes yeah so when he's making the prequels there's no fear anymore there's probably True. a little little bit of ego and he mm -hmm. has more money that if it fails he doesn't care. He has so much money, he'll just make the next one. And Phantom Menace, right. you know, a lot of people would say did fail, but it financially succeeded, and he just kept on making his movies whether people liked it or not. So, yeah, exactly. you know, I think money was a, was a big driving force in some of the decisions that were made. Right, and I think there was also that you were kind of, you were mentioning it before, like Ego, that there was an attachment to the world that he had created, right? He didn't want to hand it over to, like, 20th Century Fox and give complete creative control over it. It was, like, written into the deal, like, pretty quickly that they would have no creative input, but you'll get, like, 50% of the money, the box office draw. I think it was, like, for the first $100 million, and then, like, 75% of everything after that if you get past $100 million. Which I know for modern audiences is kind of hard to like imagine a movie of this scale wouldn't make that much money, but this was 1980. I think 10% of films made it to that point or less right. than that at that time. So that was this right. was a big gamble. Right. So there were uh, multiple things that he did that were brilliant, obviously. With Star Wars, securing all the merchandising rights has made him a fortune. But also having the guts kind of to, to be like, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm, I don't want to give this over to Fox. I'm going to hold on to it. We're going to have full creative control and you're going to get this amount of money really kind of secured the direction that it would go for the rest of the, the trilogy itself there, but also secured him this kind of intellectual property going forward. So two huge decisions that he made during the, the original you know trilogy time that paid off both, I think from a, obviously from a monetary standpoint, but also from a creative standpoint, really paid off too. Yeah, I agree. And Mark, I'm going to hit you with a kind of a straightforward question here. And when we talk about movies and sequels, a lot of times it's harder to make a sequel better. I think people jump at Dark Knight quickly. They say that's definitely a better film than, than the Batman Begins, but it is pretty rare. I mean, some people like Aliens better than Alien, but I don't particularly think it's the better film. I think it's still a competent, but very different film. Terminator right. 2, I think people would say, is better than the original Terminator, but again, a very different film. Right. Would you say this is, and a lot of people would, is this a better film than the original Star Wars? Yes. It is. There's this, like, I'll just say yes, full stop, and then we'll just extrapolate on it. It's a better film. It, it, it executes everything better. The special effects are better. The script is tighter. There are more mature themes. It's diving into kind of like dealing with the loss of of Ben emotionally for Luke and also the attachment of Luke with his friends versus the completing what he had been sent there to do by Obi-Wan. It's definitely a better film and it's it's hard I think especially because this is a movie that was created immediately after. When you talk about Terminator, Terminator 2 was Terminator wasn't a wild success like we've covered on this podcast initially. By the time you got to Terminator 2, years and years have gone by, so you've had time to to shape it as you needed. Yeah, I think this it was, what, seven, was seven or eight years, I believe? Like 84 to 92 later. or something like right. that. So you had a lot of time. This one, the studio is breathing down their neck. They're like, you have a success. We need you to get this done. Yeah, this, this came so, out, what, two and a half to three years later, I think it three was? Three years later. Yeah. And they had an original draft by Lee Brackett that the first draft and then she unfortunately passed away. So he had to write the second draft himself, even though he didn't want to, before bringing on Lawrence Kasdan from Raiders of the Lost Ark to kind of like fine-tune it and change it into the final draft that they ended up doing. This is with the studio breathing down his neck. So the uh, closest equivalent that we've discussed there would be 
Batman Begins and then The Dark Knight. But even though Batman Begins was a relative success, it wasn't the runaway success that this was. It wasn't like Warner Bros. like, okay, we have to get this out next year. They're like, we want to get it out quickly, but you're going to do what you will have to do. This one is like, get it out now. We need to capitalize on the success. Who knows if the iron's going to stay as hot as it is right now. So for this movie to end up being the gold standard both for this Skywalker saga as well as sequels in general is really an accomplishment. I agree with, with everything you said about this film. And my one pushback would be, and I think I agree with you, it's, it's better filmmaking, better narrative, better scene structure. It has all that. My one complaint anytime someone says this is the best film I don't think it is a complete narrative. I think this is part of a story. You can't watch Empire Strikes Back and get a beginning, middle, and fulfilling ending. Yes, it has an ending, sure, but you feel like there's more story to be told with Yoda and and Luke and with Darth Vader and Luke. You feel like there's more to come. Right. And obviously with Han getting frozen. So yeah. I, I think this, this is, I agree with you, in most every single way, this is a better film but I don't think it's a complete narrative. I think that's a fair that's a fair argument to make. But I think another thing that's great about these, like this movie is just over two just over two hours long. So they kind of like hum along a, a lot more. There's a lot less of the bloat that I've seen recently, where we have like an extra ten to twenty minutes that we don't need. This movie feels pretty lean. It still the goes only through. bloat when I rewatch this film, Mark, and some people say it's it's part of the universe building it's part of the feeble right. things but when i believe it's han and leia and chewie are trying to escape they end up inside some monster and then they, they get out they walk around and they start poking at it and right. they realize flying away that they're inside some you know creature some giant monster right and i thought like is this necessary but i think it's mm -hmm. it's part of world building and universe building and understanding it's you know, a little Star bit Wars. of yeah. It's a little bit of expanding a B plot to have like an escape. Also, a little bit of like they need I a little, little downtime to crash. Have yeah. the characters interact a little more. A little, a little comic relief. Even when he like shoots into the floor, yeah, and everything moves. Like, uh, we should leave. <laughs> so, so it, it brought a little bit of levity. It has there, purpose. That, it does have purpose. It has a little bit of purpose. There, yeah. you could cut that. But if you cut that entire sequence. You're you're still humming in at around like two hours. Sure. No, I'm with you. This is movie is is very well as far as scene structure, the the the, the fluff and the, the the extra bloat as you said. It, it, this is a a better film. So now we don't really have to discuss the the production and the the issues with actors injuries, which I know are well documented. Mark Hamill prior to the the shooting and then people got injured on set. Difficulties with production, as we were kind of discussing before, there's some writing issues and just different things that 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 push them back. Even filming some of the Hoth stuff, the weather right. and the blizzards and the things that got involved with it. I'd say this was a, a complicated film to make, but I think I want to talk more, Mark, about sort of the, the themes and the tone of this film, which it's obviously a darker tone than the first film. Yeah, it definitely is. It, it, again, like we were going over before, you have Luke still kind of reeling with the loss of, of Ben and kind of trying to manage his devotion to Ben with his devotion to his friends that are still with him with Han and Leia. So he's kind of battling that throughout the film. And his um, aunt and uncle, which you don't really yeah. get a feel that he really cares much about them, but they were also killed in the first film. Right, exactly. But <laughs> he's not having premonitions about them tell him to go to the dig of a system which i agree with you from a character standpoint it's a little suspect that he doesn't think about his aunt and his uncle a little bit more but that's kind of consistent throughout the films his his his, his daddy darth is is who he ends up kind of seeing with with ben and yoda in it, after they're victorious and nothing to pour uncle owen and aunt Peru. <laughs> But yeah, he's dealing he's dealing with that loss and, and trying to weigh the devotion to his fallen mentor versus his friends that are still there. His duty to become the Jedi that that they need versus being the reliable friend as part of the rebellion as it is right now, as as the battle is currently going on. And then you also have Han and Leia dealing with their feelings for each other, but also Han dealing with well, kind of his his past sins coming back to haunt him. Yeah, there's a lot there. And 
I think also it's exploring more of the Star Wars universe as well as, as the themes. So you got these these themes. You know, you finally get this some um, daddy issues with Luke, right. which we find out about. Which, Mark, I got a question for you. I've read reports that George Lucas had planned it from the beginning, and some say that it was written for the second film in that mm-hmm. Darth was going to be his father. And when you watch Star Wars: New Hope and you watch it under a close lens, does it feel like? They thought Darth was going to be the the father all along. If I'm being honest, no, I don't think so. I think when um, you listen to the scene between Luke and Obi Wan towards the beginning, and when he's talking about Darth Vader, it, and he says that I believe he says he he killed your father, or he, well, I yeah. forgot exactly what he said. He betrayed and murdered your father. I think it's something like that. But it doesn't sound like George Lucas was thinking with that dialogue. Mm-hmm. That it's so clever and it's so ahead that he's thinking, well, he technically, you know, yeah. Darth Vader took over for Anakin Skywalker by murder. Not really. So I agree with you. I think this was a, a plot twist they wrote into the second one. And it works, obviously, to this day. People uh, hang their hat on that. But, yeah, there's there's those are the mature themes we're dealing with between the characters. And then, as I said, there's there's universe exploring. There's exploring more of the Star Wars lore. We're going to more planets, more places. Right. And I think they also explore a little more romance than you get in the first film. Yeah, they definitely do, and it helps to have like a deft hand that that can kind of write it. Again, I'm go- I'm going to crap on George Lucas, but I'm giving him credit at the same time. George Lucas has done incredible things for the industry as far as lighting and sound. He created the universe itself. There, he created a fantastic first film. Right? There's no arguing against... I'm, you can argue against it, but you're really wrong. But the man cannot write love scenes. He can't write romance. So having Lawrence Kasdan in, like, they have ro- actual romance that feels like it it could actually have happened within the universe. It feels authentic. It doesn't feel forced. Right? It, it, took, it takes something to make Natalie Portman just check out on scenes in multiple movies in, in the prequels. That, like that takes a special type of lack of skill. So this works better because not only do they have chemistry, but the dialogue isn't as overly flowery and and weird. It just felt like conversations that these two people would have when they're struggling to communicate their feelings to each other. Yeah, it feels organic. It feels yeah. genuine. And Carrie Fisher and Han Solo, there might have been some sexual tension there. There's rumors of they possibly dated for like a minute. Right. But but there's definitely some tension there, some sexual tension there. There's definitely oh, there an attraction. And whether that's great acting or if this is just what's happening behind the scenes, either way, you can tell it's there is some genuine authenticity to their romance. And you're right, the dialogue backs that up really well. Yeah, it's just it's just that it felt like dialogue of two characters that are kind of struggling with feelings for each other but also what those feelings mean in the circumstances that they're in right they're they're two characters that are very aware of their importance both to each other and to the rebellion that they're fighting for and i think that's that type of awareness that is missing from the prequel so i don't intend for this entire thing to be me crapping on the prequel movies but i can't help but compare but it the the characters feel like they know the weight of their importance both to each other and to their rebellion and i think that informs the way that their characters act and interact with each other to make it feel more authentic yeah and the authenticity uh of i'd say han solo his character has this overconfidence to him yeah he usually gets by just like almost like indiana jones does too he just kind of like gets through each each situation by luck, by banging on the his by the Millennium Falcon, by just shooting and it just happens to hit something. Like he usually just like squeezes his way out of situations, and his his overconfidence is something that Leia at first is is turned off by because ugh this this brutish man he's so like rough and he's so full of himself. He's, he's think, a scruffy nerf herder. Yeah, exactly. It's great dialogue. But that's what I think she eventually just grows attracted to is his confidence in himself, whether it's overconfident or not. I think she sees this man that really believes he can do anything, whether he can or not. And you see their 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 relationship throughout this film, because the first film, there is 
that, you know, they play the little princess, the lines back and forth. But here's where I feel like their romance really takes off. And as you said, it, it feels real. Yeah, I think there's something to that, that that Han Solo is portrayed as someone being overconfident, but like it's a fake it till you make it. But there is that even though he's he's overconfident, there is that confidence that he has in himself is like, all right. I don't know what's happening, but we, we'll figure it out. We'll get through it. Like the the don't ever tell me the odds is like the embodiment of his own mental state about himself. Is like, well, maybe we're not going to get through it. But don't tell me the odds because I could I could figure it out. I'll figure it out. And he always does figure it out. And the ultimate confident move as well is when a princess who you've been attracted to for all this time and you're about to be frozen maybe forever. She just mm-hmm. confesses her love to you, and all you can say is, I know. Like, what kind oh. of, like, cocky, egotistical move is that? It's it's the ultimate ad-lib. It is the ad-lib of all time, where Harrison Ford was supposed to... It's, it's written in the script that he's supposed to say, he's like, I love you too, but he was like, I... He'd never said it. He'd say, I know what the line is. I know. And it's per- it is perfect. It feels perfect to like Han Solo the way that he is, and especially the way that he is with Leia. Even though there is this attraction that they've been kind of dealing with throughout this entire film and the film before, that in that moment where he's about to possibly die, he wants to just exude that confidence that attracted her to him, and he just says, "I know," because like he probably he, did. He keeps. Eventually, you thought maybe he'll let his guard down. He'll. Someone, I think anyone in that situation would be like begging or pleading or expressing all their feelings. Instead, he's just like, yeah, I know. Like, it's just such, but it definitely fits. It's definitely consistent with the character we know. Yeah, and you get a great payoff in, in Return of the Jedi where he finally kind of breaks the barriers, break down. He's like, I know about you and Luke. Like, he breaks it down finally in that movie, so there's a great, great payoff there. But that entire sequence, I think, is interesting that the sequence itself and the I know is a result of contractual like upheaval that they weren't sure if they're going to be able to get him for the third movie so they put him in carbonite like if you can't get him he'll just be there his likeness that'll be fine but you get that entire sequence and that ad lib out of them not being sure about his contract status for a a possible sequel yeah it's fantastic how that happens and I want to talk about the introduction of a major character of Yoda that was introduced in this film and and now probably what one of the most recognizable characters in film history yeah absolutely it's funny to think right this was a this was the world before people knew who or what yoda is right that there was the world before that and when you think star wars yoda is like one of the first things that most people jump you know, have have jumped to their mind so it is interesting to think that this is this is the movie where where yoda's first introduced to everyone and you know, obviously you got Frank Oz, you got the great puppeteering, but I think that what's forgotten sometimes is just this unique, unconventional way of speaking that Yoda has that's become so classic, so signature. People probably make jokes or puns about it on a daily basis, but it's a clever, I don't know who was responsible for the way the character speaks, if that was George Lucas or if that that's was one act- of the writers. That actually was George Lucas, so I get to I get to come back and be Team Team Lucas again. During one of his drafts, that was one of the things he came up with. They weren't sure about the name of the character because there were a couple different names they had cycled through. They weren't sure about the look of the character because originally Yoda was going to be more frog-like, but he developed, I think it was like the third or fourth draft, this like very particular pattern of speech for Yoda. So that was actually fully George Lucas even before he kind of started collaborating with Lawrence Kasdan. So See, credit Lucas, to George Lucas. We give you credit when you deserve it, George. We we will we'll, you know, bash bash things we don't like, but you have to celebrate the things they do do right and this is definitely one of them. What I think the character of Yoda was important to show in the Star Wars universe was that power is not based on how big or strong someone is that it showed that you can't judge someone by their appearances. And when, when Luke can't lift the ship up and Yoda does it pretty easily and Yoda's what, two feet high, a foot and a half tall. I don't know how tall he's supposed to be, but I think that showed what the force really is because you got a bit of the force in the first movie, but Mm -hmm. not as much. I feel like you get more of it here with Yoda and kind of explaining 
his relationship to it. Yeah, the the force, the way that we kind of see it now with the way it's been developed over the subsequent movies and subsequent two trilogies is very different from how you looked at it then, right? The the big move in this movie was him kind of shimmying his lightsaber out of the ice to kind of, you know, cut off the arm of of the Wampa. So this scale of having this something so someone a creature so small lift up something so big isn't something that they had tackled whatsoever so it, it gives you a different view of oh this is what he could be building towards this is what they're talking about with the force and what jedi can do and this is why he needs training is because he has the potential to be able to possibly move literal mountains when he gets this, you know, this power within him fine-tuned. So, yeah, I think that was a really important message. It created some really great dialogue talking about how you can't judge someone judge someone by their size and I have a power for allies is the force. So, it's really important thematically, but it also important as far as building the power for Luke as far as what he could become. Well, I think you've said it before on this pod before and sci-fi movies, especially you have to do, you have to have a set certain set of rules. Right. And once you have those rules established, I feel like if you maintain those rules, people understand the world better. And right. I feel like in the first movie, it was limited what kind of force we really saw. It was really just the use of a lightsaber and then, yes, he used the Force to, like, shoot the the Death Star at the end, kind of right. taking the radar away and just feeling it out. But there's not much Force besides a couple things Obi-Wan does here or there to, like, mind control, trick people, things like that. But here, they kind of expand that. And you, I feel like this is the first time you really get a good set of rules as far as what the Force can and cannot do. And then also, I think it also shows you what a Jedi should be because we saw Obi-Wan who is calm, collected, patient. And here you see again Yoda, again, who is calm, collected, patient, and thinks things through, versus Luke, who we still have, who's probably as much as the first movie, he wants to run into every situation. He wants to charge in. And I feel like that's sort of that samurai, that zen, that that's, that right. Jedi have now established to have, but we didn't really have a full establish of, of what that entailed. Definitely. And I think that was really important within, if you look within the movie itself, they're having a second figure that helped train Obi-Wan reinforce that line of, of, of kind of ca the way of carrying yourself actually would be the better way of saying it. Like just carrying yourself as calm and collected and very Zen kind of feeling yourself with the force there and, and letting that kind of energy go through you and become one with the world around you in order to embrace that power it was really important because he only had a short time with with Obi-Wan before his untimely demise so even though it was very impactful having another mentor that's similar in philosophy really is important as far as the development of Luke as the Jedi of all Jedi the Jedi of all Jedi well Mark I wanted to ask you one more question about the cliffhanger ending because sure. it is sort of a cliffhanger ending. I mean, you do get some re resolution to Vader does defeat Luke, cuts his arm off, cuts his hand off, I should say. He kind of, like you said, licks his wounds, goes back, it's a robotic hand, and, and Han is trapped. He's frozen. So it's a cliffhanger ending. And when I think of other cliff, you know, other sequels, I think of Back to the Future 2, Terminator 2. Aliens. These movies were start, finish, end, and it's a full movie. You didn't need a third movie after that. It didn't have to happen. I guess Back to the Future, you'd say probably if any of them asked for a yeah. third a little more well, than any of them. In, in your defense, they were still in production on the third one when the second one came out, and they said, here's what's happening in three, and they had like a teaser at the end of the, the movie, basically ready to go. So, But I would say it's it's very rare to have a huge success with the first movie, and then have a right. second movie that basically is going to be a two-parter, more or less. Right. And my mind goes to The Matrix, which I know people don't love those sequels. But I think that's like one of the best comparisons I could think of, of a movie that was a huge success, the original. 
And then the second is basically a cliffhanger. It's basically a two-part movie. But right. obviously, we all know Matrix re- Revolution, all the Matrix sequential films were not nearly as good as Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. So right. I just think that's such a difficult thing to make a cliffhanger ending and a sequel work to the extent that Star Wars did. Can you think of any others that tried to do both those things, a sequel with the cliffhanger ending that was, was even close to as successful as this? I, I really can't think of one. And the other part of it is that I think the world and I'd say the way that the film industry works with sequels and with series and now cinematic universes are concerned, you don't have that uncertainty that they had going into this, where it's like a really bold choice. Again, we, we've used that a couple times, but I don't think it's overstating or over reiterating how how bold of a decision it is number one to not capitalize on the title of the movie that made you successful to begin with and number two to not have like a clear-cut line of oh this is the end of of the narrative story if this doesn't take off like a rocket so yeah it's a, it's i can't think of anything off offhand the closest one would be like the dark knight because the dark knight you do have the Joker literally suspended in the air, and he's talking about how they could go on like this forever. And Batman's being chased at the end as well. Right, so and he's being chased off. Yeah. That So that would be like the closest one, but even as that happened, you're like, there's no way they're not going to finish this off here. And retrospectively now we think there's no way they weren't going to finish off Empire Strikes Back. But again, like you were pointing out, if this movie doesn't do very well... He, he's ruining himself financially. So what now seems like it's very certain at the time was a big question mark. So if we take all the circumstances together, it's, yeah. it's pretty amazing. It's, to think. It's, it's kind of like unmatched. Now, would you say, and people have said, I think many times, do you think this is the consensus favorite among fans? I'd say among fans, this is usually the favorite. Me personally, is it is my favorite Star Wars film as well. A lot of even Return of the Jedi, which is like the I think me personally, I would say it's the campiest of the three films to my taste. Had all the three films have moments, but this one has so many moments that are pivotal in movie history. Like we were talking about the I know from Han Solo. We're talking about this is the reveal of Darth Vader as a father is like no it's like you killed him no I am your father which also is now one of the most misquoted lines of all time but there are so many moments in in this film that are just iconic yeah the Um, no I am your father line and we didn't really talk much about that that was one of the biggest plot twists in film history and now I feel like everyone knows Darth Vader is his father but that must have been so shocking at that time to watch this movie because there's really no hint to it right they really don't hint they don't give you any foreshadowing that he's your father Mm -hmm. that he's luke's father so that's a enormous plot twist yeah and to the credit of i think it was to the credit of of mark hamill i believe he was one of like three people that was aware of the plot twist until the premiere of the movie and the story goes, as it's told by Harrison Ford, that at the premiere, he turned to Mark Hamill and says, you piece of shit, you kept this secret from me this entire time? He's like, he's like, yeah, I was sworn to secrecy. That's great. To be back in May 21st, 1980, to know what it would have been like when this film came out. Right. As you said, just over two hours, it's 124 minutes. So it's, it's a, like the perfect length for like a good film. Two hours is kind of like that perfect sweet spot. Had a budget of $30 million, which is pretty big, considering we're talking about 1980. That's mm-hmm. no small amount of money back then. And the box office, you know, its initial run over $400 million, which with inflation is almost like a billion dollars. It's the yeah. 13th highest grossing film if you adjust it for inflation. So you're talking about a film that was instantly, like you said, a monetary success and has legs. I mean, people of all generations continue to watch this movie and realize its greatness. Yeah, it's it's great because uh, again, I think it's it's really a testament to the power of collaboration and being able to delegate out duties uh, and focus on what you do best there, right? Even if you have a property that you created that's near and dear to you, having that self-awareness and having the self-restraint to be able to 
delegate out those duties and collaborate with other trusted partners to create something kind of bold at the time that has withstood the test of time and is really the gold standard for this Skywalker saga. And I think that's something we've discussed many times on this podcast. This is another running theme. It's just great collaborations. I think we've talked about, I think, Lion King or Aladdin and the collaborations of the music and and some of the the songwriting and the, the teams that made those movies. And other collaborations we've seen of certain directors and cinematographers that kind of understand each other and certain you know, we haven't talked about the music here whatsoever, Mark, but sometimes I was the great just thinking about that right the great now. musical scores with when you think of the Elfmans and the John Williams of the world and the collaborations they have with great directors, that's what greatness happens, I think, is when a team comes together to make something. And Mark, the music doesn't get more I'd say more, you know, classic, well known than Empire Strikes Back. There's a couple of hits here that were not in the original. Right. Yeah. If we talk about collaborations and talk about the long lasting impact of one movie, John Williams obviously is is one of the most iconic film score composers of all time. But this is the movie that created the Imperial March, Darth Vader's theme, which is used not only in the context of the Star Wars universe, but is now a staple in sports and just media in general. As New Yorkers, if you go to Yankee Stadium, you'll hear the Imperial theme. Like, every single time you go there, you hear the, you hear the march. So it's it's become kind of ingrained in all different parts of culture that you wouldn't have anticipated it would have been. Yeah, I'd say the Imperial March is now... I'd say as significant as the Star Wars theme itself. Yeah, which is amazing to think about. Which is incredible to think about. So, yeah, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about the music a little bit. We didn't talk about, obviously, the plot. I think most people know the plot. We just kind of brought up some of the key and memorable moments. Obviously, you have the full cast back, which we haven't talked about, you know, like 3PO and uh, R2-D2 and Chewie. and, And the whole crew is back from the original. And I think that's one of the other, you know, successes of this film is, again, you have an ensemble. It really is. You know, you got a group of like seven or eight memorable characters, and they are fully formed characters from the original that are back. And these are like your buddies that you get to hang out for another two hours with. Yeah. And then you have the introduction of Billy D as as Lando Calrissian, one of the iconic characters of original original trilogy. But... I think what was great, I think, about the way that they built this movie also is that they went to completely different types of worlds, right? You start off on Hoth. You start off on an ice planet when the overwhelming theme for the previous movie was like... Tatooine. Tatooine. Yeah. You're thinking about deserts. And then you go into the Dagobah system and... It's all like you, swampy it's and jungly. Yeah. Right. You have the swamp and then you have the cloud city. Like, city they went in to, the clouds. Exactly. Yeah. You go to all these different types of places. And again, you could have really stuck with, okay, we'll go to something similar to, but not tat- no, Tatooine. Or, but they went with completely different feel for this movie because of the different types of planets that they went to. And when you're talking about the scope of your your universe being the universe and traveling at the speed of light between different systems as possible, obviously you're going to have all different types of planets. So I think that was also really smart to go to all these different types of settings for this movie instead of sticking with what you kind of established in film one. Yeah, you brought up some great things again, Mark. I think the prequels and the sequels, I think they fall on nostalgia too much. They always want to go back to Tatooine. They always want to go back to Coruscant. They always want to go back to places that people think are significant and have seen before. Because they say, oh, this is Star Wars. If I show this to people, they'll think, oh, that's Star Wars. But I think the magic, like you said, of this movie is showing you new places you've never been to before. And Return of the Jedi does that again, where they bring you to, was it Endor? What's the, uh, what is the system? Is it called Endor? Yeah, it's Endor. Endor. The, so, moon, the moon of Endor. The, yeah, which was also, we hadn't seen anything like that in Star right. Wars yet. So it was cool to see, again, a different locale. So that's great. And then I'm so happy you brought up Lando. I feel like yeah. no one says cool in the Star Wars universe like Lando. And Carrie Fisher had, had said in an interview that he didn't always know his lines on set and this and that. But whatever. Lando's great. Billy D, he's great. But it was, it's, he's just a signature role now that. You, you kind of get a feeling as soon as him and Han see each other mm-hmm. that there's 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 history 
There's a relationship there. Yep. And he his character is like alive, you know, Lando. There's just something lively about his character. They said that when they first had the script written, he would be like a guy from some guy, you know, selling something in Mississippi, just kind of like with charm, but that southern charm to him. Oh, he definitely has that charm for sure. He's very charming, Lando. So one of my absolute favorite characters. And yeah, he's also introduced in this movie. Well, he's the, he's the only character that calls Han Solo Han, if you think about it. Like, that's how close they are. Is like, we need to give uh, Han, old buddy, some more time. And he, like, he sign- <laughs> his other signature quote, which is a lot of quotes in this movie, he says, this deal's getting worse and worse all the time. <laughs> and I, I just love that because I think back to Robot Chicken. That's a great sketch in Robot Chicken with, with that. But the last character, Mark, that I, I want to bring up that is a fan favorite, but... He doesn't really do much. Is Boba Fett? Oh, I have strong feelings about Boba Fett. Yeah, this 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 will be, I guess, the hot take that continues to to trail to follow me wherever I go. Not a fan of Boba Fett, and I know that we know people have have kept up with Star Wars and watched Mandalorian season two. Are like, but did you see what Boba Fett does in Mandalorian season two? Yeah, it took forty years for them to finally make him as cool in canon as people had created in their mind in fan fiction but in the original movies he's useless yeah he is he is a bounty hunter that is terrible at his job and probably should have died in a sarlacc yeah i i think we discussed it on the tv shows last week of mandalorian i'm right there with you on boba fett but i think he might have maybe 10 to 15 seconds of screen time in this movie and somehow he had all this lore behind him from like the seven images you see of him on screen. He looks really cool. He has a really cool outfit. That's he's still useless. I I'm gonna hold on to this for a long time. Even when they create inevitably continue with the Boba Fett miniseries or whatever it is that they're gonna create and continue to make him a cool character, and people like, will be telling me, see, he is cool. And it'll it did like take people, forty years, yeah. Right. That's it'll be like people being like, You see how cool the polka dot man is? Yeah. I mean it took until a movie in twenty twenty to make polka dot man cool. It doesn't mean you were right for decades, it means you're right now. It's it's it is a good take, Mark. I, I'm with you on that. <laughs> I think it's a very fair take. So yeah, 1980, Empire Strikes Back. I mean, there's not much you can say about this film that hasn't been said. I'm sure a lot of what we said today has been talked about before. But this movie is obviously fully deserving a spot. I knew once we talked about New Hope, we'd be talking about Empire Strikes Back one day. It just made sense to talk about them sequentially. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, you can't understate the impact that this film had. And again, it's for it to be a sequel that arguably, and in most fans' minds, it wouldn't even be arguably, but I'll just say for the sake of being fair, arguably is the best movie of the trilogy. And now if we think about the nine movies, is probably the best of the nine is remarkable because the amount of pressure that you had for this movie to be successful might not be paralleled by any of the other movies with the exception of maybe the final movie of the nine where there's the pressure of landing the entire thing but other than that you have an unexpected success and then this is the movie that immediately has to come after it it's like you have to make something that's going to market all that success and turn this into something that's going to be bigger than the first one was. Yeah, uh, there's a huge amount of pressure. They did all that. And Mark, we, we failed to mention as well, this introduced the Emperor, which was supposed to be like the great villain, yeah. the, the one person that Vader even feared. And you could say, I'd say he's a successful character. I mean, he's not yeah. as, as, as tremendous as Vader or as impactful on the series as Vader, mm-hmm. but Emperor is a classic villain. He is a great character in the series and he's introduced here as well right and which some people don't realize uh, it's the same actor ian mcdermott from this movie in 1980 through the rise of skywalker so kudos kudos to him yeah i I love that that was one of the great trivias when i saw the prequel films and they said it was the same actor i said how is that possible he's got to be like 90 (laughs) but he was he was on the younger side it was makeup back in the day so it it was really Ah, cool that that happened. Yeah, thank God for prosthetics and practical effects and uh, aging someone up there in in this particular role so that we were able to have that type of continuity all the way through to the end. Yeah. 
So once again, Mark, we, we are completed our conversation of Star Wars Empire Strikes Back from 1980. I'd probably, as you said, the arguably, but also clear consensus, probably favorite film of Star Wars fans. And I got a feeling we'll probably talk about one more Star Wars film because it probably is still good enough to reach the Hall of Fame. So I think if, they, if the fans bear with us, I think we'll probably end up talking about that one one day. Yeah, I'm sure we'll end up circling back to the Star Wars universe at some point. And who knows, if we're on long enough, they might come up with another property that we think is is good enough for immediate induction. Yeah, that's fair. That is absolutely fair. So, Mark, I want to thank you, as always, for joining us here on the Hall of Fame movie podcast, where we usually talk just about movies, but the last few weeks were TVs. But we're back talking about movies again today. So thank you, Mark, for joining me, as always. It is a pleasure as always, but it is especially a pleasure when we're talking about a movie like Empire Strikes Back. It it does make it that much more fun. You are right. So, Mark, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at Twitch at twitch.tv slash ursusfidelis or on social media at instagram.com or twitter.com slash ursusfidelistv. Great. And guys, do check out our back catalog. We are coming very close to a year of making this show and we're having a lot of fun talking about some great movies but there's been some great already down the pipeline that we uh, did and some great down the pipeline coming forward so keep tuning in leave some reviews leave some ratings and uh watch some good movies there's some good stuff we're, we're into november now so please uh check out all the good content that's out there yeah check out the content that's out there now and also obviously the the great movies that have uh influence those movies there as well yeah november is one of those months i love going back i feel like it's it's like star wars month harry potter month lord of the rings month because it just this is a time of year where you just you want to watch those classics i don't know why yeah i don't know but I'm, i'm right there with you yeah so thank you guys enjoy enjoy your week and we will see you guys next time later from mark and matt thank you for listening to the hall of fame movie podcast Check us out on Instagram at Hall of Fame Pod or email us at thehalloffamepod at gmail.com. Please leave us a review and be sure to tune in next time.